was in his office and he had this modded out 12 inch card action figure. He had ripped the sleeves off and he had put in a, a, a sash from a dark Phoenix action figure he had on it and then drew in a little beard. And he, you know, that was his little mirror Bacardi he had on his, on his desk. And it's funny because I think I was really influenced by that more than anything because I did all these other designs and then I did one last minute. I was like, ah, what should I do? And I ended up doing that, not not remembering that I had seen that in his office. I unintentionally plagiarized his, his mod doll. Hi, I'm J.K. Woodward, Star Trek illustrator for IDW titles like The Mirror Universe. And you're listening to Trek Untold. Told the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I am your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. Today's guest has an amusing story attached to them, mainly one that embarrasses me. J.K. Woodward is someone I've wanted on this show for a really, really long time, and today I finally got him. Now, if you're not a comic book fan, that name might not mean much to you, but when you see his artwork, I think you're going to be very interested. J.K. is an illustrator who also happens to be a massively huge Trekkie, and is responsible for many of the covers and interior artwork on a ton of Star Trek comics coming to us from IDW. That includes his work on the recent TNG Mirrorverse saga, crossovers with Doctor Who and Green Lantern, and plenty more. Now, I've been trying to track down J.K. for ages on this show, and I literally traveled to another state to make first contact with him. As it turns out, he's actually a lot easier to find than I made it out to be, and a typo on my end was why I never had prior success in reaching out to him. But hey, better late than never, and today we're taking a trip through JK's artistic journey under a Star Trek lens, looking at his Star Trek work from around 15 years ago to where he is now as a painter. Not only that, we're also getting an exclusive up-close look at how JK paints with a live demo. If you're one of my audio listeners, by the way, you might want to swap out for the video version this week just to see how his work looks when he's doing it. So with all that said, let's get those palettes out and our brushes ready, because today we're talking Star Trek comic art with one of the modern masters, J.K. Woodward. But before we get into this week's episode, I have to ask you, are you following Trek Untold on social media yet? You can find us over on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, all at Trek Untold, one word with no spaces. You can also become a Patreon supporter for this podcast over at patreon.com slash trekuntold. Here, you can directly contribute to keeping this show running at full power for as low as a few bucks a month. If you do this, you'll have early access to new episodes, the ability to ask future guests questions, check out exclusive merchandise, and other special benefits. We've also got an official merch store and an Amazon store filled with Star Trek goodies. So if you want to rock a Trek Untold t-shirt to the next con you're going to, or order something Star Trek related for yourself or someone else, please use the links in the show notes to help us help you. Shout out to our show sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions, makers of fine 3D printed Star Trek inspired toys and accessories for collectors of all kinds. But you'll hear more about them later on. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. 
So the crazy thing about this interview today that we're doing with Mr. J.K. Woodward across from me on the other side of the screen is that I've been trying to track him down for forever, and I got to finally meet him at a convention in another state far away from where I live. And meanwhile, it turned out that it was the easiest thing possible to contact him on his website. So silly me, but today we are joined today. Finally, I'm very excited to chat with you guys and share this conversation with you with Mr. J.K. Woodward. J.K., how's it going? Good, good. Thanks for having me. And yeah, I am the easiest guy to contact. I know, that's why it's like so embarrassing. Because I was like, I kept sending different things to different things, I guess, that were wrong. I don't know what I did. Uh, this is a first for me <laughs> to have that many errors going wrong and then just like meet a guy at a con and be like, here you go. And then there you are an hour later. So go figure. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, we got a lot to talk about today because I'm a big fan of your artwork. I know a lot of our listeners today are also big fans of your gorgeous work. Uh, but let's just kind of take it from the top here. And JK, I'd love to know, what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? And it's pretty safe to assume you were a fan growing up, weren't you? Oh, yeah. I used to watch the original series in syndication back in the 70s. Um, and I, I guess my earliest memory is, is I think I was like six or seven years old. Uh, and I specifically remember finally, after having watched about a year or so, figuring out, oh, wait, Spock doesn't have emotions. Like it hadn't occurred to me in my six-year-old mind. And I, so that's like my earliest like concrete memory where I, I remember that episode. I think it was, uh, and I can't remember the name of it. <laughs> It was one of the early ones. I think it might have been, um, what was the uh, transporter accident that split Kirk? Uh, the Enemy Within? Oh, yeah, that's real early. Yeah, yeah, I, think it, yeah. I think it was that one. And, and, and ironically, that's one where Spock shows the most emotions, <laughs> facially. <laughs> but uh, that was the episode where I remember I was six or seven going, oh, wait, he's he's Vulcan. He doesn't have emotions. I did, It didn't occur to me. I was just kind of... He was my favorite character because of the ears and the eyebrows at that point. And then he just became more interesting the more I learned about him. It's funny because by season three, Spock was like neck deep in emotions because so many episodes are just about screwing with that, like the Medusins, uh, Spock's yeah. brain, and just like giving him more ways to emote. Well, I mean, that was his arc. I mean, uh, through the through the uh, three seasons, he, he started embracing more and more his human side or being influenced by a human crew or a predominantly human crew. And then for the motion picture, I think they felt they had to reset him with the Colin R. And, uh, and then he had another arc <laughs> where he had to actually die and become more human as, as, as time went on. Um, so he has these two major arcs and they all lead to embracing his humanity, you know, each time. Which is funny because today you see like so many folks complaining about Strange New Worlds, so how Spock is talking about all of his emotions. But really, that's always been like his main character trait is actually dealing with the emotional balance. And actually, at the time period that that it's in, he he was an emotional creature. He wasn't fully embracing his Vulcan side. I mean, if you look at the original pilot, he was smiling and always shouting for no particular reason. <laughs> he also had, like a stubbed foot for no particular reason. But that's a different story altogether. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's kind of dig back a little bit further here, get some more background on you, J.K. So I'd love to know who, who were your parents? What did they do? And what did little JK want to be when he grew up? <laughs> I I was uh, raised um, mostly by my father. I, I met my mother a little bit later in life, or it felt like I met her. I obviously knew her, but she they had divorced early. Um, uh, my father was uh, worked in a factory, and uh, I think my my mother was a country singer. Oh wow! <laughs> so so it's that's really, a big yeah, change. I'm picturing picturing a nice picture of a trailer here, right? Uh, <laughs> Star Trek for me was kind of like I was raised by the TV <laughs> and uh, it, it wasn't syndication. And it was probably my favorite show, though. The 70s, if you remember, was um, 
was kind of like a goldmine of science fiction shows, like low budget science. I mean, there was Buck Rogers in the 25th century, I think, like late 70s, early 80s. There was Battlestar Galactica. Star Wars had just come out in cinemas, if you had the money for that kind of thing. Um, so science fiction was all over the place, but I think Star Trek was, um, first and foremost, my favorite. It was, it was the one show I could rewatch every episode over and over again and not get bored. Whereas, you know, one time's good enough for uh, Buck Rogers. <laughs> but, uh, as far as, um, art goes, I was, um, I fell in love with comics. Um, and so I would just copy, I would start by copying pages. I was uh, like a John Basim Spider-Man or a Gil Kane Spider-Man. Spider-Man was my big title. And then I, before I found the X-Men. Um, and then I just started learning who these artists were and being able to tell the difference between their styles. I uh, picked up a book called uh, How to Draw the Marvel Way. Um, <laughs> it's yeah, kind that of a one Bible too. for a, yeah, it, it really is a Bible for if you grew up in a certain time and wanted to draw comics, you know, everybody had to have that book. Uh, and that was, a, I think that was a John Basimo was the, the artist uh, that did all the, uh, the teaching in there. Um, basically, it was... It should have been called How to Draw the Kirby Way. It was teaching the kind of Kirby <laughs> school of, 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 uh, which was the house style of Marvel at the time. So that was, that was my style until I, um, until I discovered, uh, Bill Sienkiewicz in the eighties, uh, first with the uh, Moon Knight, where, um, he was pretty accurately described as, um, uh, Neil Adams on acid. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but I really kind of, what really kind of, uh, caught my attention was, uh, Lecter Assassin later on, which was kind of mixed media, airbrush. Uh, ripped paper and glue, whatever he had, he seemed to throw onto the page. And, and, uh, it got me interested in what you could really do in comics. Um, and that's what kind of led to painting. Uh, later, he would do a, a series called, uh, Stray Toasters. And the art in that was just incredible and beyond my little teenage brain at the time. But I, all I knew is that's what I wanted to do. And, um, I started moving more in that direction. And later I would discover artists like Alex Ross. Which my style is probably much more similar to the the hyper realism, but that was sort of my my track in art, and, and it all came from comics. Um, and and later I would discover, um, you know, other other forms of art, and 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 develop an interest um, that would that would sort of feed into what I was doing in in comics and my illustration. It's kind of funny you mention these names because as I was going back and looking through a lot of your older comics, I can like absolutely see Gil Kane influences in there with like the way that yeah. you would use darks and lights to create shapes on people. Uh, Bill, definitely you got the Bill Sinkovich line work. I mean, I can, I can definitely see that when you talk Moon Knight, when you're talking like the Electra yeah. Assassin, especially. I can really see that in like your early, uh, some of your very first Star Trek stuff we'll talk about here. So that's really cool because you've had a lot of really, it's quite a mishmash of different types of styles. And you really think about the things that have like heavily influenced you. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty much known, uh, especially in the last 15 years for, for the wash painting kind of hyper realism stuff. Um, but I'm constantly telling editors to, to, to no effect that I can do other styles and I, I would like to do other styles, uh, preferably something that's a little quicker so I can make a little more money, <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, because it's really time intensive stuff. Um, I'm always trying to do stuff. And if you look at, uh, uh, my fallen angel stuff, I did get to play around with different styles in that. Um, mostly because it was, it, it was a mini series. It started out as a mini series. It became a monthly book. So I had to kind of switch switch over to something quicker but um because my influences are so um sort of diverse and opposite spectrum almost <laughs> um i've learned to you know it's it's hard to incorporate it so i've learned to develop like different styles for myself so little jk is going through grade school he's getting better at artwork all this and that 
what does he do then to take this passion and make it into a profession? Well, actually, that that didn't really happen until I was 30. <laughs> so I was kind of late with it. Um, what happened is I bounced around a lot, moved around a lot. Um, I ran away from home when I was 16, uh, ended up in L.A., um, did everything from uh, uh, I, I worked at a toy store called Hollywood Toy and Costume for the first year, kind of under the table. I uh, ended up in a job with um, uh, market research. It was called the National Research Group, and we do movie surveys. We were the annoying people that would call you in the nineties and ask you if you saw any movies, and then oh, with you guys, spend thanks. An hour on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, when I got sick of that, and I realized, uh, you know, I, I would still, I would do a lot of. Um, uh, I would had a couple of gallery shows in North Hollywood at the time. I was doing more fine art. I got away from comics for a while, uh, but it was more of a hobby. I, I didn't really make any money out of it. And uh, I got kind of worried about where this trajectory was heading and decided to get like a backup. And then I went to school for, a, you know, um, I got an associate's degree, just a quick two year thing um, in computer science, just because the Y2K bug was coming up and there were lots of jobs. That's the reason I did it. I really no interest, but, but, uh, there were lots of jobs out there that paid better than, than market research. And so I'm going to do that. Soon as I got out of college, I got a job as a multimedia producer, um, for a company that was doing, uh, I, I basically lied in the interview and said, I knew all the software for animation and, uh, and, and uh, they said the first, if the, if I was hired, the first thing they were going to do is send me to a new animation uh, technology exposition, Nate, uh, over in uh, Pasadena. And so my first day on the job, I I went to a convention basically, and I went I went to everything. I was running to every every uh, every panel, every class, any anything I could get, and I was just absorbing all of this. And then um, I was getting um, as much free sample software so I could learn this stuff. And then when I, I went back after four days of that, and I kind of knew enough to fake it. <laughs> and so I started doing uh, multimedia production. So editing, um, uh, 3D animation, things like that. So I ended up finding a career in art, <laughs> uh, despite, um, and this later led to design. And then later it would lead to Germany, uh, where I was doing some record covers, which led to comics. It was this weird trajectory, but I finally got there when I was 30. And um, one of the first jobs I did was CSI New York for IDW uh, back in, I think it was 2003 that came out. It's kind of funny that you mentioned, uh, you know, that you were working on a backup job, essentially having a backup plan. I hear that from like so many people. Like, I know I went to art school with folks and a lot of them, you know, it's like they just start dropping like flies the minute they graduate day one. Literally, they're all just like, you know, half them just start working at Walmart, working somewhere else, and they never go back to it. I've heard from so many people who have had difficulties where, you know, they'll they'll do the art school route or they'll want to be artists or whatever, but they'll be told by someone else, like, that's not a real job. You have to have a backup plan. And it's just funny because, yeah. like, here you are, and this is now your real job. Yeah, I, I always discourage the backup plan because really what that does is it can make you complacent. Mm. It, that was me giving up. <laughs> You know, but uh, somehow found a way back into art because that's clearly don't lie to yourself. If that's what you want to do, that's all you're going to do. You're not going to stop till you get there. So all I did was pay a student loan for the next 15 years uh, that I didn't have to pay. <laughs> you know, um, you know, if you're really serious about it, you know it and you'll find a way. You know, everybody does, you know, and, and if and if you end up at Walmart, it's because you gave up. You know, you know, if that's going to happen. <laughs> I knew I was going to get I knew I was going to get a career in art. I just got scared and, and went for the backup. But, you know, if you're 
you're going to either get there or die trying. Comics are a very, very tough field to break into. Uh, so, you know, I'm curious for yourself here. I mean, what did you do to make yourself grow and start to stand out more against a very, very competitive field? I was doing a style that was, again, uh, it's, there are not many people doing painted photorealistic. Uh, and that's kind of what broke me in uh, that and tenacity. <laughs> you have to keep coming back. Um, you, you can't take no for an answer. But I think that's kind of what gave me the edge. Uh, it certainly was with IDW. They wanted somebody who could do likenesses. And I demonstrated I could do that. Um, and they needed that for CSI New York. Um, unfortunately, you know, <laughs> that now I'm trapped in that style. And it's very, like I said, laborious, time intensive style. Um, whatever you, be careful when you're when you're breaking into comics because whatever you break in as you will kind of get stuck there for a while. It's very hard to to uh, to change style unless you unless you're a huge name, you know. Uh, and even they evolve over time; they don't just change. But I think it was the the kind of photorealistic, uh, especially with properties like uh, CSI New York and then and eventually Star Trek. Um, they kind of like that realism because then they can get. It can feel more like an episode, which is sometimes what you want. Sometimes that's the opposite of what you want in a comic. It just depends on on the script. But I had that niche because there was nobody else except for Alex Ross really doing it. And Star Trek can't afford Alex Ross. <laughs> really, nobody can afford Alex Ross. I don't know how Marvel nobody does it. Can, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is sponsored by Triple Fiction Productions. Celebrating 15 years in business in 2023, TFP creates 3D-printed Star Trek and sci-fi-inspired items that fit into any collection. Whether you're a cosplayer who wants a Starfleet phaser, a Bajoran tricorder, or a Klingon dagger, or a toy collector looking for that special accessory or diorama to make your figures truly stand out, Triple Fiction Productions has exactly what you need. And for you figure fanatics, that includes products that are the perfect size for Galoob, Mego, Playmates, and everything in between. All products are 3D printed in the U.S., with new designs constantly being updated on their website. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, where the more you order, the more discounts you receive. TFP also has a pay-what-you-want section, where clearance or misprinted items are available at a discounted price. Best of all, every product can be shipped worldwide. As a special bonus for listeners of this show, Trek Untold has a special discount code just for you. Enter UNTOLD10 at checkout for 10% off of all orders with no minimum purchase required. That's 10% off using UNTOLD10. To see all of their products, head to triple-fictionproductions.net. Or to stay up to date on their newest products, find them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Triple Fiction Productions, where something is only impossible until it happens. Have you ever watched a YouTube video and said you wish you could do what they were doing? Whether it's the filming, the production, the editing. Maybe you listen to your favorite podcast and you wondered how they put that show together. How they got that great sound quality. What gear they used. How much does it cost to get started? Or maybe you checked out a video or read a book about one of your favorite entrepreneurs and it made you say, I want to live that life. I want to do what they do. Then check out my podcast, Toys and Tech of the Trade. I'm Rich Butler, and I've been making podcasts for almost two decades. 
speaking with experts across all fields to get to the bottom of the hows and whys of their achievements. Each week, I sit down with these amazing people who have carved their own path in life and share the gadgets, the gear, and the tech that they rely on to create their content, the methods that they use to run their business, and the habits and trends that are part of their daily routine and their way of life. And all of that, of course, gets put together to make them successful. We pull back the curtain on the process to help you understand what these people do differently so that you can draw inspiration and get ideas and be inspired so that you can take action today. This podcast is inspiring, educational, it's enlightening, and most of all, it's a lot of fun. I want you to join me on this journey so that you can use the tools and advice shared in this podcast to level up your business or creative endeavors, giving you all the tips, tactics, and tools so that you can transform what you're doing from a side hustle into a full-time lifestyle where you can collect a paycheck for doing what you love. Check out Toys and Tech of the Trade wherever you listen to podcasts and check out the RageWorks Network at RageWorksNetwork.com for more info on this podcast and all of the many other great shows that we have on the RageWorks Podcast Network. That's Toys and Tech of the Trade with some assembly required. So what would you say then is more important for someone who's like trying to work their way up through the industry? Is it developing a style? Is it working quickly to be able to meet your deadlines or is it just having the tenacity to kind of never give up and just keep pushing and getting yourself out there more and more, especially in today's like social media heavy market? Um, I'm going to have to say yes to all, all three of those. Um, I think uh, Scott Tipton once told me um, you have to be, there are three things you need and you have to be two out of three of these. You got to be uh, fast. You got to be good. And you got to be pleasant to work with. Now you can be two two out of three of these, but you've got to have at least two of them, or, or um, you won't last long. Um, I think the most, especially we're dealing with periodicals here. Basically, that's what comics are. They they got to come out every month. I think uh, being on time is probably uh, the most important. But uh, you know, if nobody's picking up the issue because you suck, <laughs> so you know, being good, I would put that in a second and. Being pleasant to work with is important because you are spending the majority of your time um, working with these people. Maybe you spend, I mean, not, it is a collaborative thing. So you are going to have to deal with these people. And if, if you're a pain in the editor's ass, you're not going to ask back because their job's hard enough because they're, they're dealing with multiple titles and you can't act like you're the only one. I think, um, I think that's probably, probably being respectful of an editor's time is the best thing you can do. Not doing that is the biggest mistake you can make. Right, so, JK, let's start going down memory lane here. So I'd really like to talk about your Star Trek art, but using this as a kind of talking point about the evolution of your style. Because as we mentioned, you know, today you're doing this very Alex Ross style, very photorealistic type of thing, but you didn't always start that way. And I want to bring us back to, uh, I think it was your very first Star Trek cover ever, which would have been Star Trek New Frontier number two. Is that correct? Um... Might no, I, I actually I did uh Captain's Log, the, the Pike Captain's Log first. That was first. But I did okay. the, I did the interiors on that one. There was a, yeah. a there were the one shots called Captain's Log, and there was an alien spotlight I did around the same time. And then I think this was the third cover. If if this was the first cover I did that I was only a cover. Yeah, it was just a cover art. That's all you did for that one. It yep. was just a cover and I didn't do the interiors. The yep. the two I mentioned before them were covers and interiors. Okay. So this was the first only cover I did. And, um, yeah, I know which one you're talking about. Um, had like the growth on the space dock, like infecting the, the ship in the space dock. Um, and that was done 
yeah, very much in traditional style. Um, pen, you know, pen and ink and digital colors. Um, and that was the style I was using at the time I was working on Fallen Angel. And like I said, it was a monthly thing. So that was a style I was using on those pages. So I was accustomed to it. So when I got the cover, it didn't even occur to me to ask. I just did it in that, that style. But let me correct you for a second. I did start sure. in photorealistic painting and then switched and then switched back. So the early Star Trek stuff will have a, uh, a more traditional feel to it. And then I, um, switched back. Did you see the alien spotlight, the Klingon one? Um, I did. 4,000 throats. That's an example of me doing three different styles in the same book because they were three different stories and three different timelines as told through Kang. Yeah. So, so you'll see an almost uh, Bruce Tim style cartoon in the TOS era um, with, with painted backgrounds. And then you'll see a kind of watercolor wash kind of painted style, a little bit more impressionistic. And then finally, there's a medieval story where I did a like full photo realistic style that I, that I kind of use today. Um, which, so that was, that was kind of a challenge because it, it was almost, I had to switch personalities every eight pages. Because so. I noticed by like 2010, cause I think that's when you did the captain's log books. Like that's when you're now like going to the real fully painted look, whether it was like what you're doing today uh, or just digital style, whatever it was, you can tell me, but um, you know, I feel like that was the point where you kind of like started to lead into more of that type of work. Oh, so what? Maybe I had it wrong. Those, so the captain's log was in 2010. I thought that so, was. Like, yeah, I, I believe captain's log was 2010, and then spotlight, and it would have been 2008. Oh yeah, you're right. You're right. I was in Long Beach when I did. Okay, I I remember things by what city I lived. in. I feel better now. I was like, oh god, okay. I get home yeah, no, bed. you're right. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was um, that cover was like around 2008, right, or yeah, 2007. Yeah. Okay. No, yeah, damn. Uh, for some reason, I thought. Um, I mean, listen, you made a lot of stuff here, so I mean, it's kind of understandable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I can't believe I remember anything. You know, to be honest, that isn't like over a year old. Can you remember how it felt to actually get a Star Trek gig? Because that must have been just like mind-boggling to you at the time. Yeah, I mean, I remember uh, when they got the license. I was in the middle of Fallen Angel, and I loved being on that book. Working with Peter David was great. I mean, that was my second job ever. I'd only worked with two writers and one was Max Allen Collins and one was Peter David. So I was like, I'm doing great. You know, Pretty good. <laughs> I don't want to, but at the same time, I'm like, ah, everybody else is doing Star Trek, but me, you know, cause I'm stuck on a series. And so, yeah, basically I, I think the editor with Fallen Angel and I, I, I'm so sorry. I can't remember his name at the moment. Um, at that time though, I, I, he was the editor of both and I begged him to get me involved somehow. And he was worried about, you know, me not make my deadlines if he gave me too much. And I promised him that wouldn't happen. Just give me a cover. So he tested me out with that. And then I think I did it like an eight pages or something. Uh, and then I finally, when Fallen Angel got canceled, I went right straight to Star Trek. So by this point in 2010, we're still talking here, uh, but I kind of want to look at this as an overall piece of how you work now today as well. Uh, I'm curious about photo reference. How much photo reference do you use versus observation in life versus just making it up in your head and keeping in mind here that you're working with established licensed characters who have a likeness for the most part. You've got like some freedom with certain characters, but we're talking here 2010, for example, you've got to have uh, Jeffrey Hunter's face. You've got to have uh, the actor who portrayed, uh, portrayed Jellicoe. I can't remember his name, but you're dealing with actual likenesses. So I, I imagine there's got to be some kind of balance here. So talk to me about like how you're actually literally shaping these characters. I, I, I've learned to draw from life. 
Um, so I figure drawing and stuff. I'll sometimes do photos of myself and then look at that just to get the lighting right. With faces, though, uh, always using photo reference for that to get likenesses. Always going to uh, back to the show. Always looking uh, not just at what the actor looks like, but what the actor does for that character. Because you don't want to paint William Shatner. You want to paint Captain Kirk. And there is, a, you know, a subtle, there is nuances there. There is a difference. Certainly with like a good example is the difference between Leonard Nimoy and Spock. They look like two different people. You know, Spock doesn't smile. Um, so I always go right to the reference material uh, when I'm working on something. In, in fact, I will stop and, and do like screen freezes and just draw right from the screen sometimes. Um, so um, you want to get, you want to get what the actors do. You you don't want to re reinvent. I'm not going to do a better Captain Kirk than William Shatter. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so I'm I'm definitely going to use references, and I definitely want to get those likenesses right. Now, when it comes to anything else, the sets. A lot of times, I don't need reference. I know what the uh, the bridge looks like uh, in full detail, especially the original series uh, and Next Generation. And of course, it's a lot of fun when I get to invent my own ships or alien species, uh, which sometimes occurs. Um, of course, I don't need any reference for that because there's no wrong answer. It's all, you know, what I come up with. But uh, de definitely with always reference with likenesses. So let's go into one of the nerdiest things I think that's on your resume. And it's a pretty amazing one because you got to do the Doctor Who Star Trek Next Generation crossover. Yeah. Which was assimilation. <laughs> uh, I, I feel like this was like, the real development of where we're seeing you today. I feel like this was, you know, at this point now, a lot more confident, a lot thicker painting. Like, you know, I feel like especially the captain's log, you were still like not quite sure what you wanted to do with it, maybe. Um, but it feels like at this point now, like you understood what you want to do. You understood the medium a lot better. I mean, I feel like there's a big jump between what we saw then, what we're seeing here. Uh, so talk to me about what you did for this one that was a little bit different for you. And also just how cool is it that you get to historically do a Doctor Who and a Star Trek crossover? I mean, that's just got to be like the most amazing thing for you. Well, it was, it was a game changer. And in fact, I thought it was a joke. Um, I was speaking, I think I was speaking to uh, Denton, who was the editor on there, and Chris Ryle, who was the editor in chief at the time. Um, and I would always call up and go, What do you got? What do you got? I want more Star Trek, you know? Um, and they said, Well, how would you feel about Star Trek Doctor Who? And I was like, All right, if you're not going to take this seriously, you know, I thought it was a joke. I thought they were messing with me um, because they would do that sometimes. <laughs> You know, when I found out it was real, uh, I knew I had to do something more. What I had been searching for is before was a painted style that would bring some kind of realism to it, but would be time efficient. You know, something I could do realistically. I didn't want to spend 20 hours on a page, <laughs> you know, if I could help it, because that would mean 100 hour work weeks to get the thing done in time. When it came to this, I had to take this a lot seriously. I knew it was uh, a game changer. I knew I had to, uh, I knew I had to work a lot harder on this. And so I did it. I put in the time. Um, and, uh, and it was more than any other book I'd ever done, including Fallen Angel. It, it was a bigger seller. I mean, I, I, the, the way I could tell is, and I still have the poster hanging in my, um, in my kitchen. I had done a signing for, I think it was at Midtown because I lived in New York at the time. And yeah, there was a line out the door. That had never happened before. I had always been the guy sitting there where you come into the comic book store and you see a guy sitting all by himself at the table waiting to sign something and nobody's there. And you kind of feel bad for him. And you go, who's that guy? I, I was, that's who I usually was. And now I had this big line 
And I, I knew it was, you know, that was just when issue one came out. And I was still, I think at the time working on issue five. And I was like, yeah, I got to take this real serious. Um, so it was definitely a game changer. And it was probably of this style of art, of this photorealism, probably some of the worst I've ever done because I was kind of, I was still kind of a newbie at it. Um, I'd like to think I've, it's gotten um, a lot better since then. But this is where I, I told myself there is no sacrifice I'm not willing to make to make this work. And, and there was, it was almost a year of my life, seven days a week, nothing else going on. The second you wake up to the second you go to sleep, that's all you're doing. And that's, um, I mean, it was worth it. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Looking back on it now, what do you wish you could have done differently on it? Well, one of the things I did, and I, I would, I don't want to jump ahead, but sitting on the edge of forever, I, 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 and it, it was another thing where I had to up my game and I started working on larger size. Uh, and I started spending more money on brushes, uh, sable hair and, uh, better paint. Um, and I asked for more time. I said, can we get a lead on this so I can spend six weeks on an issue instead of trying to do it in four or five? I wish I could have done that with Star Trek Doctor Who, the art. If you look at the difference between City on the Edge of Forever and the art in, in Star Trek Doctor Who, I think um, even even somebody with with a novice eye can see the difference. Um, so I, I I wish I could have gone back and had a little more time, spent a little more money on it. Now, also in Crossover Land, uh, you know, this is around the same time period where I think we're getting like Star Trek meets Planet of the Apes and that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And roughly same time period, I say within you know, a few years. And that was also the Tiptons that wrote that same same writing team that did Star Trek Doctor Who. Yep, yeah. Scott and Dave Tipton, who we've had on this show before. They're awesome, awesome guests. And uh you guys also did, I don't remember if this was with the Tiptons or not, but I know you uh, illustrated this. You did the Green Lantern Star Trek crossover, and this was actually yeah. Abramsverse Star Trek. So that is yeah. v- extra unusual. I'm trying to like wrap my head around it still, even though I've read this thing. I'm just like, okay, of all the things to cross over with, not even just Green Lantern and Star Trek, but Abrams Star Trek and Green Lantern. Right. So uh, there's got to be a story attached to this somehow. I mean, t- tell me about this one here. <laughs> Well, I, I think the writer on that was Mike Johnson, if I remember. Okay. Right. And I, I, was it Tony? Sh- no, it was Angel. I'm not sure who the artist was. I'm sorry. I shouldn't even, I should just keep my mouth shut if I don't know. I can uh, handle that. I want to just start that sentence again. <laughs> All right. So I, I, I believe it was Mike Johnson that wrote that. You were asking him, wasn't the acceptance okay. on that one. Um, and that was something I, well, I really wanted a DC credit and I knew I didn't get the job. I'm not doing the job because I was doing something else at the time. So I wouldn't be able to do any pages. So I begged for covers and I got two covers on that. And the first cover I did, I just wanted to encompass the whole thing in the hopes that they would use it on the uh, collected trade paperback or something. Uh, so I wanted to, it was called Spectrum Wars, I think. So I got, the, you know, I got the two major crossover villains. I got, um, I tried to include everything. It basically did a, a, a Drew Struzan style kind of painting of as much as I could get in there. And uh, I, I don't think they ended up using it for the trade paperbacks, so that, that didn't work. All I ended up doing was spending an extra 30 hours on a cover. That, <laughs> But uh, it was exciting because I wanted a DC credit. Now I had one, you know. Um, but it, it was really hush-hush. And the other reason I really wanted to work on it is I wanted to find out what it was about before it came mm-hmm. out. And that's the, that's the way, you know... Um, that's the way you find out, you know, you got to sign NDAs and you got to keep your mouth shut, but it's fun to, you know, I had a million questions I wanted answered and the best way to do it was uh, 
to get it covered. Hey everybody, we'll get right back to the interview in one second, but I wanted to remind you all to check out Trek Untold over at Patreon. Patreon is the best way to directly support creators of things you like through a monthly subscription of an amount that you can choose. Trek Untold has a few different tiers already with different benefits, ranging from early access to episodes, the ability to ask a future guest questions, exclusive merchandise, and other bonuses that I'd love to offer, but first I need to grow that Patreon community to do that. Trek Untold has been around since mid-2020 and has grown a ton since then, thanks to listeners and viewers like you. Through a platform like Patreon, you can help me keep improving the quality of each episode and keep bringing you new interviews with folks that make the Star Trek universe what it is. If this community can grow more over on Patreon, I can offer new perks like watch parties, exclusive Trek Untold episodes, being able to directly interact with guests, and other things, but in order to do that, I need to know my audience wants these things. The best way to tell me what you want is by supporting us on Patreon, so please, Check us out at patreon.com slash trekuntold today and become a bigger part of the Trek Untold family. And now, back to the interview. Now, at this point in your career, too, you've now done covers. You've done a lot more interiors. We've done a lot of painted interiors like we've talked about here. So yeah. from, let's say, you know, day one, working on Fallen Angels, start to work into Star Trek all the way to where we are now. Uh, and you, know, you had just mentioned Drew Struzan style covers as an inspiration. How have you felt that your style was changing? From that point, I mean, you know, to do something like a Drew Struzan cover, the composition is very different from what you're doing, you know, five years earlier. Right. So uh, how did you see yourself coming along? Where where were you going and what were you planning on trying to do at this point with your art? Well, I think out of of, uh, necessity, the longer you do this, the more chances you take because you don't want to repeat yourself. Uh, When I first started doing Star Trek covers, I did the typical Star Trek movie poster, a couple of floating heads and get the Enterprise in there somewhere or a ship in there. and then, you know, that gets that gets old really quick. So then, yeah. So then I start doing kind of a Struzan composition. Um, I think it was not until um, Mirror Mirror Broken, where I, I, I wanted to do more of those kind of Bronze Age comic action covers. You know, I mean, if I could get away with that, I put dialogue balloons on the covers, you know, like they like like they did in the good old days. Uh, um and uh, I kind of embrace that. I, I kind of think that's still where I am, um, though I do get um, directed into doing um, uh, more Struzan style stuff a lot. But I, I, I like the action cover. It's, it's more of a challenge. It's a lot more fun. And as far as anything else, I think it's just everything else that's changed over the years has been kind of nuanced stuff. I do a lot more with lighting. I, I um, do a lot more with... Okay, so if, if we were in television or movie industry, we call them gels. I do a lot more with gels, like warm lighting, cold lighting. Basically, a gel is a color screen you put on your lights or cellophane. You put on the light to, to color as the, the lighting. So I'll do like, I like to do like a, like a warm rim light behind the character. So you get like that kind of yellow edge that makes it pop out. And then, and then cold lighting on the, the shadow side. And it's sort of that cyan orange cliche they use in movies, but, um, having a lot more fun with color than I used to. Cause in fact, I, what I used to do was at the beginning, I would paint in black and white and then digitally colorize it, uh, in the way that they colorize movies, which is basically a color layer in Photoshop that picks up the gray tones as that, that color. Um, but that got pretty static and that got pretty boring. And I'm glad I'm actually spending the money on, on, on different tubes of gouache and, uh, actually adding color in the, uh, initial stages rather than digital. 
Well, let's jump into your magnum opus, at least for the time being. Uh, and that would be the TNG Mirrorverse series, which starts in Mirror Broken. And then I believe if I'm getting this right, it's like through the mirror and then Mirror War. Uh, and I got to tell you, as a fan, like I'm in love with the series. Uh, it's just so much fun to read it. Uh, you know, amazing writing as well. But seeing all these characters yeah. in their mirror form is just the coolest thing ever. Uh, so oh, it, is. it absolutely <laughs> is. I mean, it's got to be fun for you, right? So talk to me about that first things first and foremost, because you're literally doing TNG Mirrorverse characters. They didn't do that in the show. So you got to like really figure out the whole look and the feel of these guys. So uh, I yeah. guess the best way of trying to figure out how to start this is how much freedom did you have to do this? And was Paramount in your ear saying, no, you can't do this, can't do that? Or was it kind of just like up to you to figure out the looks of all these characters? It was it was up to me, but it was a collaboration. Well, let me let me first say Paramount wasn't involved at the time because CBS, it was before Viacom merged back together. So there was no Paramount was its own and CBS was its own. And CBS had the TV and consumer product rights and Paramount only had the movie rights. So I was working directly with CBS and um, it started as a style guide. They were doing a style guide for Mirror Universe products. I didn't realize at the time, but I suspect it was in anticipation of the Mirror Universe stuff they were going to be doing in Discovery two years later. Um, this was before, this was pre-Discovery. Uh, and it, it was, there was a big gaping hole in uh, Next Generation as far as um, uh, Mirror Universe. Now, there were novels and there had been some comics and nothing was consistent. Um, so they, they wanted to, let's just start from scratch. Let's come up with what the mirror universe looks like. Uh, so I was working with um, designers and I can't remember the design house. I'll get that information. We could pop it in later or you can put it in the show notes or something. Um, but I was working with uh, CBS consumer products directly and this design house. And they came up with the, with the symbol that they used, which was, which was a variation on the, the dagger through the planet that we saw in the original series. And I came up with, um, uh, the look of the characters, and I had done so many of them. But I remember when I had the first meeting with uh, John Van Sitters, and I was in his office, and he had this modded out 12-inch card action figure, uh, like kind of like a Mego figure, but it wasn't Mego. I, I don't remember the company, but he had ripped the sleeves off, <laughs> and he had put in a, a, a sash from a Dark Phoenix action figure he had on it, and then drew in a little beard, and he, you know, that was his little mirror Bacardi he had on his on his desk. And it's funny because I think I was really influenced by that more than anything because I did all these other designs, and then I did one last minute. I was like, ah, what should I do? And I ended up doing that, not not remembering that I had seen that in his office. I unintentionally plagiarized his his mod doll, um, and <laughs> and that ended up being the ones we used. Uh, it was overwhelmingly more popular with everybody. Uh, and I'm glad it happened because one of the things I'd like to do is I, I'm a comic fan and a Star Trek fan, but that isn't really, or never used to be that common. Uh, Star Trek comics didn't get the kind of respect they deserve from the comic community. Um, and comics didn't really, wasn't an interest with most Star Trek fans. Some, but not all. So I wanted to get more Star Trek fans into comics and more comic fans into Star Trek. And I thought if I make them look like superheroes, so I gave them all like, you know, I buffed them all out, you know, and it made sense to me that they would look that way in the mirror universe. Because why wouldn't you lift? Why wouldn't you want to be as strong as you possibly could in a, in a world where, you know, you're going to have to fight every day? <laughs> you know? 
So, um, so we put a gym on the Enterprise, you know, and Picard does bench presses now. He is like he did an issue too. But yeah, that was, that's kind of the story about that. I also had a few things I did. Like I, I, I felt like the engineering crew would have to have a layer, extra layer of protection to work down there. So I gave engineering leather jackets. Uh, we also had like a three quarter leather jacket for, for, uh, the dress uniform. So, and I was kind of going for the, the Nazi look, you know, the pirate look and the Nazi look. That's the mirror universe. And so I figured the leather three quarter, the high boots, that's a dress uniform. They kind of looked like Nazis. But, uh, generally what you would see, the regular uniform you'd see every day is sleeveless for everybody. And I didn't just make the men buff. I mean, the, the women were kind of, you know, like, uh, uh, Tasha Yar kind of built, built like Ronda Rousey, you know, so. They were all kind of, they all went to the gym, but it, it was, it was something for me. Um, it was kind of exciting to see the characters in that way. And it was something that you also could never do on TV. Yeah. <laughs> you can, this is something you could only do in comics and it made it kind of exciting to work on. I'm just so curious now, like thinking about this, like what would the mirror version of the cetacean ops department look like? Like what are those dolphins going to look like? <laughs> well, they'd be sharks. Uh, wouldn't they? There you go. Oh, okay, that's brilliant. Sold. <laughs> and that's that's uh, you know, when you're done in the agonizer booth, that's where they throw you. <laughs> so again, you you know, you are a giant Star Trek fan, and so are Scott and Dave Tipton. They wrote the Mirrorverse stuff with you, or uh, rather on their own. Um, but yeah, actually, I'm curious. Like, you know, this is looking at how you work as a whole. You got the Tiptons. You are a part of this project. You guys are all massive, massive fans and know this franchise in and out. Uh, so when it comes to like writing and drawing. How do you guys, if at all, collaborate on this project? Is it kind of that they do their thing, you come in and just do yours? Uh, how does that work? Well, it wasn't always this way, but it became this way um, by the mirror universe, certainly. Um, it started with, they'd ask me for a wish list, what, what, I, what I would love to see. And they'd, they'd see if, if it fit, if they could do it. And then it turned into, we would have these meetings, much like we're doing right now. We would usually Zoom or Skype or something and or, or on the phone. Uh, and we just brainstorm and just kind of lose plot. And then, um, you know, uh, Dave and Scott would kind of tighten it up in an outline and we'd have a second meeting and talk about that. Um, and then they would do the script from that. But basically it was just chaos. We'd have a, a, a quick chaotic call like, well, what about this? No, that won't work because of this. Or this is one of those conversations that, uh, that, that we all have with each other for free anyways. You know, what if, what if, uh, nerd conversations, you know, <laughs> um, yeah, and then they work from that, and they would tighten it up, and then um, and then I would just get the script and draw it, you know, once once that was done. But that's we also did that with um, with Mirror Wars. Originally, I was going to draw that, and I I couldn't take the job at the time, um, last minute. So that kind of oh, I regret that. But <laughs> but uh, yeah, we had a meeting with that, and I think that was going to be a sequel to that because we were talking about that, and we scheduled another meeting, and I don't think that ever happened. But that's kind of how it goes. We just it's. We just kind of have fun with it, and then um, it's up to uh, it's up to Dave and Scott to make all these crazy ideas work. And one of the things that I really love about this whole mirror universe that you guys are doing with the TNG world is that you know you've got all these other tertiary characters who've now also made appearances, and there's all sorts of like little things where if you know, you know, and it's like that's cool to see that happen. But I'm curious, you know, if anything has been left, uh, you know, normally I'd say on the cutting room floor from talking to like an actor or somebody, but in your case, I mean. Were there any things that got thrown out to the trash bin, maybe? Like any characters or any ideas that you wanted to do, tried it, and it just didn't work out? Um, I can't think of any uh, characters I wanted to bring in. There was a concept I wanted to do, and I kept bringing up 
um, about data. I want I want a story to to talk about why data is the way he is in the mirror universe, and I wanted to, to kind of push the idea that um, that he's still trying to be human, but this is the lesson of humanity he learned: you have to be a good weapon, and and because of that, he seems less human because he's incorporating board parts, but it's really his attempt to try to be human or be the best human he could be. Um, that. I really, I mean, that kind of came across, especially in the, the, the origin they wrote, but I, I really wanted like a piece of dialogue to come out and say it. <laughs> and I guess, uh, they felt that would just be too on the nose and they're probably right. Um, and there was another concept, um, I really wanted for the mirror universe about Emperor Spock. And that was, um, he wasn't deposed because of weakness, as was told by Kira in the DS9 episode, nor was the Feder or, or the Empire as weak as she made it sound. You know, everybody was like, oh, Deep Space Nine says they were destroyed. Yeah, of course they're gonna tell the prisoners of war that, but it doesn't mean it's necessarily true. Now, yeah, they were defeated, they were beaten, they were they weren't in great shape, but it doesn't mean they were totally destroyed. So I I wanted the concept of Emperor Spock being defeated not because necessarily he was a reformist, but because somebody ambitious came along and convinced everybody that all these things he was doing was weakening the empire and that this person was going to make the empire great again. <laughs> and, and kind of Spock became the, the scapegoat of that. And this, this new emperor was fighting too many wars on too many fronts because he wanted to rule with an iron fist and people were pulling out of this new federation and and then they they had to be reconquered to be brought back in the empire and that's what weakened it the, the, that uh, that that there was an unwise emperor that came in and uh screwed it up and it wasn't reform that did it because i never it never really sat well with me that reform makes you weak the reform is never bad for a nation you know, so it wouldn't be bad for an empire. And I wanted that story, but there just wasn't room for it, I guess. You know, there was there's too many other things that we were we were telling, but I was kind of hoping that would get in there. And who knows, maybe it will you know, yeah. one day. Spoilers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now that you all know it. <laughs> now that I've ruined it for everybody. But, uh, you know, I want to talk a little more now about some of the work that you do, because as we mentioned earlier in this interview, good portion of what you're doing is working with actual likenesses. Uh, and I I love what you do with all the TNG crew. Like I've already said, I, I could gush about that for an hour alone and not ask you a single question. Uh, and I'm trying not to. But, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's a lot of folks out there who I think uh, are maybe easier to draw than others. Uh, some that are more problematic. I mean, I feel like Patrick Stewart and Brent Spiner, for example, are probably two like fairly difficult people to draw because from a profile, they're super easy. But I feel like from a three quarter or a front, because of the way their noses are and the way their faces are shaped, like you kind of lose a lot of stuff and flattens them out a lot. Um, this is all kind of some technical stuff, I guess. But as far as like likenesses go, who's your favorite to draw? Who's your least favorite to draw? And who's just flat out the hardest to draw that you had to deal with? Well, it's funny you mentioned uh, uh, Brent Spiner and Patrick Stewart because their likenesses for me are the easiest because they have standout features that I can grab onto and go like, that's uniquely them. I have the most problem with um, Jonathan Frakes because there's... He pretty much has the perfect Caucasian male face. You know, it's just, it's like, I'm, I'm looking for like a, like a flaw or like, you know, if he had a big nose or something, you know, like, um, 
And the only thing you can really latch onto with him is he, he has sort of smiling eyes sometimes, but a serious brow. And it's this weird combination of if you're not an artist, you maybe don't even notice that, but, <laughs> but there's kind of this weird uh, dichotomy. And if you get the eyes right, everything else works out. But he's, he's, uh, like, like I said, with, with, uh, and, and with data too, makeup helps, you know, you get those yellow eyes. Okay. Kind of didn't look like him, but that helps. Uh, there's nothing really to help you with um, with uh, Commander Riker. So Jonathan Frakes is just literally the Vitruvian man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, Worf is fun, too. Like, any anything, anything with prosthetics is fun, obviously. You know, because, you know, painting ridges is fun. <laughs> I feel like stuff like that really would help you, because it's kind of like more reference points to figure out where a face goes, where things go, that sort of thing. And details like that, you know, the, the standout breakout kind of details like that help with the likeness. Like if, if, if my Michael Dorn's a little weak, the ridges will do the rest of the work for me, you know, <laughs> whereas, uh, you know, uh, Jonathan Frakes, you got to get perfect every time. So how about the ladies of Star Trek, though? I mean, do you have any difficulties with any of them? Um, no, not at all. Um, uh, I don't know why. I mean, um, I like, uh, I, I really enjoy painting, um, uh, Dr. Crusher, uh, she's got very angular features, which is fun to paint. And it's, it's, uh, makes the lighting a little easier. So I can just focus more on other things. And, uh, I'll say this, uh, Deanna Troy was a fun character in the mirror universe. Um, because I just never stopped with the hair. Her hair was different length every panel. I didn't care. I just like if, if this panel with the winds blowing, her hair will go right into the next panel 30 feet away. I uh, had a lot of fun with that character and I got to do different outfits every issue, but they were always, um, they were always as exotic as I could get. <laughs> um, midriff exposed often because mirror universe. <laughs> yeah. I, I never had a problem. With, I, my only problem with TMG is there's only two female characters after, you know, you know, cause even in the mirror universe, you are had to go. <laughs> Now, a while back in this show, I also had another artist named Kavita Maharaj, who does these really wonderful gouache paintings of Star Trek things. And I asked her about painting starships. And I was like thinking that they must be the hardest, most arduous thing to do. And she kind of talked to me about how it kind of became like almost a meditation for her to sit through and do starships. Uh, so I'm curious for you and how you paint uh, with especially a very organic style. Uh, how's it been tackling starships? Um, It's... Well, okay. Uh, one thing I appreciate with starships is there's always a singular light source because you're in space. <laughs> the assumption is you're near a star because we have to light the thing. I don't like painting. Um, generally in Star Trek, you're in orbit if you're seeing the ship. If you're not, you're in warp and that has its own little physics to it. One thing I, that makes it really hard is if you're in deep space and there is no stars nearby, it has to be lit by all those little lights. Uh, and that is a lot of gradient work. <laughs> and that makes it very difficult for me. Uh, especially since, um, I pencil all the detail. I go over your first coat of paint and then you go back and you do those small details. Uh, and sometimes you lose the pencils when you do that. And you, it's almost like you, you're penciling it twice. Uh, the other thing is you've got to have a steady hand when you're doing the detail work uh, on, especially on Enterprise D where it's all these little squares everywhere. That gets tiring after a while because there's a lot of repetition. 
So in other words, you have these squares and you're just doing these little highlights. So you're just doing these little yellow L's along the edge to show the light hitting this that side of the square. You do that about three times and you're done, but you got about 20 more to do after that. And <laughs> that kind of thing um, wears on me. It's to me that the detail is boring. Um, I like to, I, I like to kind of just that, cause that's when the creative process is over and you're just doing the monotonous work. Um, I don't like painting chips, to be honest. <laughs> I don't enjoy it. I much more enjoy painting people. I mean, it's understandable because chips are, I mean, quite honestly, they have their own set of anatomy, really, if you think about it. I mean, they're, they got their own special foreshortening of perspective you had to figure out. And starships like the Enterprise D, especially, I feel like the, even the E, like they're kind of wacky how they're shaped. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then perspectives, perspective on a saucer is always tricky. <laughs> um, but also it's with me, it's just all that, all that texture mm. that, you know, you got to get on the Enterprise D. Um, is, is the part that gets a little monotonous. I feel like if you're a digital artist, not a big deal because you can cut and paste and you can, there's shortcuts you can take. Um, but if you have to actually go hand paint all that stuff, it, it gets old. That it's, it's kind of like the equivalent of people that draw superhero comics that have to do it in New York and have to draw all those windows. Oh yeah. On, on a skyscraper behind you. I mean, I look at that and go, Oh God, that's worse than the enterprise. <laughs> All right, so JK, you know, we talked a lot today about your art, your evolution, that kind of thing, but I would love to see it in action. Can we get a little bit of a demo today? Absolutely. I happen to be working on a commission that's Star Trek related right now. Uh, I think it would be the perfect thing to do. Awesome. Right. Well, let's beam up our camera angles to a different perspective and let's watch JK work. Sweet. You say that now. I haven't asked any questions yet. All right, so JK, I see we got here an in progress, uh, what appears to be a Quark and a Garrick. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, this is the second time I've done a commission um, of this scene. But if you remember, it's the root beer scene. Yes. The insidious root beer. So sweet, so cloying. <laughs> Just like the Federation. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, about how long would you say you are into this piece now? How many, let's say, how many hours and at what phase would you call yourself here with this? Okay, so this is the final phase. What I do is I do the, the flesh coats first, and that's mainly to get the lightnesses out of the way. Then what I do is I go in and, and you can see the color palettes that I'm using. Right now, I just did the cool palette. So that's the, uh, it's this guy. That's your blacks, your blues, your, uh, your uh, white for the metallic. Uh, what I, the reason uh, it's good that I have this piece here is it'll show you what I was talking about when I was talking about color choices. One thing I noticed about Deep Space Nine, um, about the set, uh, and it's something I like to exaggerate because I like to keep the backgrounds as simple as possible, uh, is it's always this dichotomy <clears throat> and this almost clash between the warmth of the Bajoran earth tones and oranges and reds and yellows in the background over the cold Cardassian steel, the desaturated grays that is the station. Uh, so what I'm going to do here is we have this beam that I've already put kind of the cold colors on for the foreground, but the background, I'm going to have that uh, kind of uh, warm colors coming through. So I'm going to paint it kind of monochromatic in reds and yellows. So this is essentially making like an underpainting. Yeah. Um, so I'm, what I'm going to do right now is, is, is this background and, and just show you how um, that kind of clash works. So how important is, is this underpainting for kind of like setting the tone or the temperature of your work? Is this like something you do on all your pieces? Yeah, it's, uh, it's actually very important. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
um, because um, it kind of gives it's it's kind of what gives it its personality. The uh, the painting um, more so more important to me than getting everything just perfect as far as detail is getting the tone. It's it's going to need to feel like you're watching DS9. Uh, and again, because I want the focus to be on these characters and I uh, I can't really get a Gaussian blur on the background, what I want to do is simplify the background. And the way I do that is with color. Uh, so there'll be very little over this underpainting when it's done. It's just going to, I just want the warmth to come through, do this highlight here. Uh, and like I said, this is this is a, almost a movie cliche, the, the cyan and orange, um, but it's that way because it works and I like using it a lot. Uh, and it's it's very common in DS9. Now, as you're doing that, I'm also looking at your pencils uh, and I'm, I'm seeing like, you know, a good amount of rendering in your pencils. How polished are your pencils before you go painting? I mean, do you like to keep things very tight? Do you like to have that information in front of you as you're painting or do you keep things more loose typically? Um, both. It depends on what, what we're talking about. Um, with the with the faces, I come in um, with a lot of detail and I even do a lot of shading. Um, but because of graphite, <clears throat> the oils and the graphite can push uh, the paint off the paper. I go back later with um, one of these. Uh, this is like kneaded rubber eraser, and kind of roll over it to take some of that some of that off. But I go pretty tight with the uh, with the pencils for the lightnesses. Uh, I go a little looser here, as you can see. These are just lines, <laughs> right? But I know exactly what I'm going to do with that, so um, it's uh, it, it requires much less. A lot of times with textures, a lot of that is done with the brush. And so putting that kind of detail in pencil would just be a waste of time. Now, I just got the chance to visit a uh, sort of auction house recently. It does comic book art. And I was looking at a lot of their originals. And like one of my favorite things about seeing original comic book art, especially when it's black and white, is seeing where people used masking fluid, where people used whiteout, things like that. Uh, so for yeah. the way you work at this phase, I mean... Are there any kind of tricks that you do like that? Like, are you going to use masking fluid with keeping your whites as white as possible? Uh, are you doing anything like that to kind of like, not, not necessarily cheat, but things like that kind of make your life a little bit easier? <laughs> Sometimes I will go over with uh, white acrylic for highlights, uh, but generally uh, my white is just simply avoid it with the brush. <laughs> so you're just using the white of the paper, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, that doesn't always go smoothly because sometimes... I'll get like a lot of paint on this part of my hand while yep. I'm working. <laughs> and and uh, sometimes mistakes happen, but um, generally I, I try to just let the paper be the white. Uh, again, though, like if I, if I may go over uh, cork's cheekbones here with uh, some white acrylic just to have a little bit of a highlight, but I, I make those decisions at the very end. I take a look at what I got and then um, and decide. But uh, yeah, the absence of paint is the white so far. Hmm, okay. Now, when you do like sketches for things like commissions or even your pieces for IDW, are you doing like any studies or, or sketches with color beforehand? Or you kind of just go into it, you have an idea of what you want to do, and then that's how you work? Yeah, um, no, I always. Well, first off, I do pencil sketches um, for the approval process through CDS. Anyways, when I'm doing work for IDW for any cover or anything, and I usually do, um, I usually actually do those. They're not pencil sketches. I do them in ink. I do ink wash, um, so they'll get the idea, the tone. I found out that um, 
<clears throat> the pencil sketches aren't enough always for them to understand a simple idea how great it will look once I get the the, uh, the tone in there, the shadowing. Uh, so I, I started doing them in ink. And then uh, from there, I take that, I scan it in, and I put digital color on it to try to figure out what I want to do. So yeah, that's is pretty much the, the color study I do. And that's just for me. They approve it based on the uh, sketch. They don't really have that many notes about color uh, until the, the project is done. And usually it's usually it's either approved or just or not. <laughs> so while you're doing this demo right now, you've got my voice here to distract you. But when you're working on your own, are you listening to music? Do you have TV on? Do you work in silence? Like, is there a method to your madness? I almost always have something on so I don't uh, so I don't lose my mind. Uh, <laughs> cause I'll be hyper-focused from about 6am to about 10 at night, um, on this work. And, uh, yeah, you go pretty batty after a while. Uh, so usually podcasts, uh, mostly when I run out, um, I'll usually have, uh, audiobooks and barring that music. The problem with music is music makes me want to get out of the studio and do something. <laughs> sort of sort of it's it's whereas um something like a audiobook i'll i'll like hyper focus on that and it'll kind of distract me oh it sounds like you need to listen to more episodes of trek untold if you ask me yeah <laughs> i guess i will now they're not all trek podcasts uh because i listen to a lot of stuff but you know I, i'm killing like 16 hours a day so i have a lot of podcasts i listen to on average, about how long would you say it takes to finish a piece uh, hour-wise? And, and how many hours would you say you put into this one so far? And how many more do you think you'll need to actually wrap it up? Um, I am I'm guess I'm looking at about four or five more hours. And I think I've put about 10 to 12 in. So I would say you, know, you should come in on uh, between 15 to 20 hours. So then like typically, you'd say like then a finished page for IDW would be like a two-day job for one page? Yeah, uh, well, day and a half. I work long hours. But yeah, I, <laughs> I try to get four pages done in a week. Um, so, yeah, what that means basically is about a 100-hour work week. Because um, they generally take 20 or more. Something like this, uh, a commission like this, uh, or a cover or a splash page, tends to go a little faster than uh, page art because there's a lot more to consider when you're doing page art. and you're technically doing like, you know, six to eight smaller pictures, smaller scenes. So there's considerably more work to that. Now, right now we're watching you make some lines, which are looking pretty straight in all honesty. So, I mean, is that like a skill you've learned over time is how to do straight lines without rulers? Yep. <laughs> so uh, I only do it horizontal. So you'll see me turn this thing. Um, I can't do it vertically. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if any artist, if, if it's, if it's natural to do it, you know, horizontally, if every artist is like that, I, I never ask, but I have a feeling that um, most people tend to turn it horizontally for for uh, this kind of straight line. I mean, I feel like a lot of folks who might still like be learning the early stage of painting that kind of thing, they don't realize that you actually can rotate the canvas yourself to have that kind of freedom, right? Yeah, <laughs> nothing wrong with that. The only, um, I do a lot of um, uh, time-lapse photography um, on my social media, especially on Instagram. Uh, of work I do and the only thing that that I have to focus on like something like the face or something where I don't have to spin it so much because if you're doing that time lapse stuff um spinning it's no good no good you'll get whiplash 
So you're working primarily in gouache when you do this. So why not acrylic or, or why not watercolor, which, you know, moves similarly, even though it's not as thick, but uh, you know, why, why gouache? Is that just kind of like to follow in Alex Ross's footsteps or because you find that it's the best thing for you to get the job done with? It gives me more options. Um, like I said, sometimes I'll mix in some acrylic or some watercolor, depending on what I'm doing. But gouache, you can add water and it can work like a watercolor or it can be opaque like um, like an acrylic and you can blend. Uh, it also reactivates uh, so once it's dry, you can come over it with a wet brush and reactivate that paint, and do some blends. Um, so in a sense, it's like the best of oil, the best of acrylic and the best of watercolor in one. It's just really hard to learn how to use. Um, that's probably the only downfall hmm. and the price. As far as like brushes go, I know a lot of artists tend to have like one or two brushes that they favor more than others. Uh, so for you, I mean, are there any brushes that, I mean, let's put it this way. What are like the three most common brushes you're using on a single piece? Um, I use almost exclusively round brushes and I use a six, four and a two. Um, generally, um, you know, I use other brushes, but those are the most common ones. This one right now is a, a six. It's one of the fatter ones I use. Um, and I've found a a mix of synthetic and real sable hair brushes tend to um, survive the longest, which is important because <laughs> I was the uh, fully artificial hair brushes. Um, they take a beating and they don't come back. You know <laughs> uh, what you want with a round brush is you get these beautiful. Uh, I don't know if you can see it here, but you get these beautiful little points on them, no matter how thick the brush is. So you can do detail work and then you can use the side of the brush and do some, um, uh, some broad strokes as well. Um, it's a time saver to not have to switch a brush. <laughs> it's yeah. a small thing. It, it's, it's, uh, it's nice to be able to have as versatile a brush as possible, but the only way it's versatile is if it keeps that point and it doesn't fray and the synthetic stuff tends to, tends to get beat up and fray a lot quicker. Uh, earlier I asked you about like things, I don't want to say the word cheat, but like things to make your time easier, but I kind of go a little bit more on that. I mean, I know that especially when you're using a medium that is water-based like gouache, you know, it does allow you some freedom to use things. Like I remember the first day I learned about using salt to like help me make snowflakes. Uh, so for the way that you paint, I mean, are you doing anything like that? Do you have any shortcuts that you can implement to do things that maybe like the average person wouldn't even realize that you're doing something differently with? Um, one of my favorite shortcuts that come in handy a lot with Star Trek is, um, I actually, maybe I'll do a demo of that. Maybe that'll be more interesting. You want to see a nebula? Oh, that'd be fun. I'll show you my little shortcut for making nebulas. And, and it's, it's in the background of you know, almost every cover because it's Star Trek. Yeah. So um, you definitely are a pro by now doing those. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, it's. It's a lot of fun because they pretty. You'll see they pretty much paint themselves. If you want to give us the Bob Ross, so we can follow along. You can tell us what paints we're using today. <laughs> <laughs> we're using a Windsor and Newton uh, Jet Black. That's I believe that's the one. I forget which one's the warm and which one's the cold. But there's like a there's different blacks. Um, there's warm black and cold black. And basically, that means when you mix it with something, uh, if one mix is better with blue. And one mixes better with like warm colors, like red. Uh, and when you add white, it has one will have a brown gray texture and one will have a blue gray texture. I believe what I'm using is the cold, but we'll find out when I mix. So anyways, what I uh, 
what I do is I, I lay down some black. It's the same tape markings I have on my desk for my whatnot show. <laughs> <laughs> and we should plug that too, by the way, because you're doing whatnot shows, right? So are you making pieces for folks to buy online? Yeah. So I, uh, I'll, do a, I'll do a piece live like I am now, and then we auction it at the end of the show. And I also have uh, uh, some, you know, uh, some Star Trek sketches stuff I uh, auction off. Like those those ink sketches I told you about for approvals. Um, yeah, I often au- auction those off. Just small stuff though, and uh, uh, I you know whenever I get my comps, B covers or any any of the covers I do, well I'll sign, remark, and auction those. And I have a store, um, but basically it's a live art show <laughs> where where if you'd like you can buy things. And how do folks find you on whatnot? Um, I have a show called um, JK's Saturday Night Social. Uh, <laughs> if you follow me on any social media, I the, the day before and the day of, I'm heavily promoting it with a link. Uh, but if you go to Whatnot and just look that up, it's always Saturday night around seven, sometimes eight. And uh, I, I started doing like if I don't, if sometimes I want to do two pieces and I'll start the second one, but it'll get late and I don't feel like finishing it uh because it's like midnight <laughs> so i'll have what i call the sunday hangover show and uh that's where i'll come back on sunday around seven and, and do a, a second show that weekend but they're always on weekends i've been putting off getting a whatnot account just because of things like this but now you're kind of convincing me otherwise <laughs> so i i think i i'm i should probably thank you but also like say screw you at the same time i don't quite know here what to do uh <laughs> the dangerous now this is a very dangerous way to spend my saturday nights I think, and I, you know, I probably shouldn't say it, but I, I think I know, you know, some people can watch if you go to the link without being a whatnot member. So you, you won't be tempted to buy anything. So if you just want to watch the painting, I think you can do that. Yeah, but good luck not being tempted. Come on, come on. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right, so right now it looks like you're kind of like softening up the sides of this, right? So we have this like big black sort of hole and is that yeah, what's going on here? I'm, well, I'm, yeah, I'm just actually just getting more water on this because we, wait to see so i'll i'll clean it up later this this tube of black is a bad batch it's so gummy you bad batch of star wars we don't talk about that in this show uh, <laughs> we're crossing <laughs> the streams okay it's another franchise too <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right so what you what i do now is while this is wet I let the white just, you'll see. I let it do what it wants to do. I bring in some more color. I'm I'm not making this cloud. I'm letting it happen. Ah, that's that's a very Bob Ross way to put it, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the, the water just carries it. I think you're probably picking up glare, but you'll see when this dries. So how did you discover this technique? Before I learned uh, anything in gouache, I was a watercolor guy. And so... You'd often like for clouds or sky background, you just you'll you wet the cold pressed cotton like completely, and then you drop the paint in and let it do what it does. Um, and that's how you get kind of like those uh, what I call the watercolor effect. I don't know what it's really called. <laughs> that's a f- pretty fair term to put it though, because you know for, for folks who yeah. work in something that's like thicker, more pigment heavy, like acrylics or oils, you know, you are you are basically telling it what to do. Whereas with a water based medium, it kind of does what it wants to do on its own, doesn't it? It can. And uh, using that technique I, with, with something like gouache, it had a whole different effect because 
but it's not really working with this right now. <laughs> That's because I'm watching, of course. Yeah, I know. I'm not sure how much the camera's picking up too, because it's while it's wet, you're probably seeing glare that isn't actually white paint. Another thing I do while it's wet. Uh, so you're just tapping the side of the brush to kind of flick around little dots all over the place to make stars. Yes. So I do it while it's wet, and I'll do that again. So you get so you get it to spread out, so it looks like kind of distant stars in a gaseous, like a uh, nebula environment. And then I'll, when it gets more solid uh, or dry, I'll put it in, and then you'll have more solid stars, and in, in, they'll look more like foreground. You mean you're not just sitting there like Drew Friedman stippling for hours on end? <laughs> this is a good enough example. Uh, I'll let this. I'll let this dry um so you can actually see it but uh in the meantime i'm going to add more color i put the white in first as a kind of base and then i start putting color so you know looking at your art as a whole again you know we talked about the evolution of your style over time and i'm, I'm kind of now thinking of evolution of mediums uh you know and this kind of reminds you of I, I watched neil adams before he passed away do a lecture and he's talking about like why he won't do digital and why he will always do original works like this with physical medium, because it's also a thing he could resell, like we just mentioned, on whatnot, or you could sell your sketches, that kind of thing. Uh, do you see yourself ever transitioning into digital to kind of like save you time? Or is this going to always be the way you prefer to work? The temptation is definitely there. Um, however, I'm not sure if I could get by without having originals to sell. <laughs> Honestly, um, it, it is a, a big help. Uh, because the page rate as it stands on its own is about minimum wage, you know, or, or less. Uh, I work a lot of hours, so it, it's more than minimum wage. It's not like I'm a 40 hour a week McDonald's worker, but it's like I'm a hundred hour a week McDonald's worker. <laughs> right. Uh, so with, without the, um, and because this is so time in, uh, intensive is why, um, it's minimum wage, not, not because the page rates are particularly low it's just my style of art takes a little longer but at the same time if i'm cutting my time in half then i'm making more money on that side i'm not sure i think um i think money really if i'm being honest doesn't enter into it i don't think i'd feel like i did anything if i didn't have an original right <laughs> if i did a solid piece of uh, art to to bring and why would i even go to conventions that's what i kind of do is i just bring my art I mean, I, yeah, I sell books, I sell prints, I sign books. I'm there for a bunch of different reasons, but really it's to bring a gallery in a book. <laughs> you know, I bring these, these big giant portfolios, put them out on my table and, uh, and people flip through them so they can see what the original cover looks like. In fact, I'll show you that one second. And uh, while this is drying, I'll move this aside and show you my, uh, my book, which won't even fit on this desk. <laughs> But I'll, I'll show you some uh, originals, and then I'll bring the nebula back when it's dry <laughs> and okay. show you how I do the rest of it. So this is honestly one of my favorite things about going to conventions, and I recommend for folks who have gone to Comic-Con to really make sure you head over to Artist Alley so that you can actually see the originals of people like JK, because it's one thing to see it printed, but it's another thing to like really see it in front of your face and just take in like all the details that kind of get lost in printing. So yeah, here's some of the covers. This is a, a next-gen cover. You can see what I mean about those. Um, I talk about those, the, the monotony of the detail, these, these little dark lines and the little <laughs> light lines on the side of those squares. Makes me nuts. 
That's the annual cover. Doesn't even fit on screen. <laughs> so the originals, as um, as you probably can tell, are much bigger. They're on 18 by 24. So generally, and you're, you're working about double the size of the printed page? Uh, about four times the size. Four times. Okay, four times. <laughs> so how do you get your stuff over to IDW then? Do you have a scanner that's big enough for this? Or are you scanning in batches or you just mail them the originals? I have a, a flatbed uh, scanner that does 18 by 12 and I have to scan it in two pieces and put it together. Wow. Okay, that's that's a little bit of extra work right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's better than like I used to have just an office scanner that was 9 by 12 so I'd have to do it in four pieces. And <laughs> yeah, you don't want to do that. No. <laughs> okay. Get back to my nebula. I'm just, uh, like I said, even if it's dry, it reactivates. So I'm just kind of blending in the white with it. But that's not the effect I'm going to show you. Much like the stars that I, I did. Here's a little trick I use for even a finer toothbrush. <laughs> So I can put like finer stars in there, but I can also kind of airbrush the star. Oh, nice. So you get a cluster there. When that dries, I'm going to tighten that up. But I use this a lot. Um, and if it depends on how much water you add and how much paint. But it's also an, another way besides tapping the brush to get more stars. So how watery do you have your paint when you typically do like the flicking method here? Do you have it super watery or is this just kind of like straight out the tube? No, uh, I add water. What I do is I, I mix on a separate palette for this. Um, I add more water for the larger and less, not just less, but if, if I want a finer mist, what I'll do is I'll just on a separate piece of paper. Usually I'll get most of it off and then you get a finer mist. So you can use it kind of like as to, to make the stars or you can use it like as an airbrush as I did there or kind of an airbrush. Not really, <laughs> but it's a good substitute. If you don't have an airbrush. You can see how it's kind of taken shape. You can see the nebula you can see the star. And what you do is if you put something in the foreground on top of it, like I can do an asteroid when this dries, you get a pretty good space scape, you know, and it all, all it is is a big paint blob mess. <laughs> I mean that's kind of art in a nutshell, isn't it? Though, a lot of times it's it's trump lay all. It's yeah. it's fooling the eye. Yeah, exactly. When this dries, I'll what I did was I, I took the uh, uh toothbrush with with a solution of part water, part gouache, and and kind of just rubbed my thumb on it, and it gives you a like a spray, much like an airbrush for the star. And I'm just gonna core out the star with a little bit of uh a little bit of white there. There you go. Now you can see, uh, well, if you're listening, you can't see it. But what, what happens is I, I put a, enough black down um, with enough water and then put white and a color over it. And what happens is it kind of spreads out in a random pattern that looks more like a cloud or a nebula than I could have done intentionally. So the water kind of does work. So we were talking about shortcuts. This is a big one for me, and it comes in really handy in, um, in Star Trek books. Now, what I'm going to do now is this is still a background. Now, if this was a cover and I had the time, I would paint the Enterprise over it. Um, <laughs> we're not gonna, we're not going to do that here. But I'll, I, I will put some um, uh, some floating asteroids in there, you know, so it looks more Marvel cosmic. 
Uh, and what I do is I'm, I load up the brush with, with black. I know space is black. Why am I doing that? Well, cause I'm going to cover up some of these stars. Um, and that's going to kind of give you the, the uh, impression of the shape of the asteroid. And I'm just going to make a random pattern. Um, the more random, the better, because it's a chunk of rock. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just going to put that in right there. And what happens is, is you have enough water, and what it does is it leaves some blank area um, that kind of pushes the paint to the side. And that gives the um, illusion of texture. And all I did was just take a paintbrush full of paint and blob it down. Um, I'm going to put a few more in here and then I'm going to do highlights and you'll see how it really, how just a simple line can, uh, can make the big difference. So these right now, these are black blotches over black, but you can see them because it blocks out the, the stars we just put down. Now you're going to load up some white. Are we talking cadmium white? Are we talking ivory white? Which white are we using here? Titanium, baby. Spared no expense. Titanium. <laughs> Titanium in the house. I'm catching a little yellow on that, but you want the white as a base because it's got a cover. Uh, putting a little yellow and red as um, just a, a, a little splash of color. And what that's going to do is mix with the black and get us a brown. I'm going to have to turn the light on again, so I hope it doesn't glare it too much. Oh, this one's much just drier, so folks who are watching can definitely see, I mean, now how, how much water there was that was reflecting earlier. Now, for those listening that want to go see this, where do they go? Let's plug your YouTube. So. Well, they got to go to YouTube.com slash at Trek Untold, and I think they definitely want to swap over, at the very least, just to see this demo here, because it's absolutely worth it. Now, you see how just these little lines, you just decide where your light source is coming from, and then just cover that side, and don't be afraid to leave a lack of detail uh, on the rest of it, because... In space, everything's in shadow. <laughs> everything now, at this point, is- too, I mean, how wet is your brush when you're doing this part of it? Because I know you've been using the, wet, the wetness of the brush to kind of like move things around, but now that you're trying to put these defining details in there, are you back to a dry brush or are we still wet here? Yep, much much more paint than, uh, than water. Um, so, yeah, fairly dry. Um, because you want, you want to cover. And you want... It's really just a solid line on the side of the, the blob you've just made. <laughs> and it'll give it uh, on just one side and it'll give it, um, it, it'll give it the, um, the highlight that'll give it the kind of three-dimensional look. I mean, it's kind of surprising like, how quickly this has taken shape. This really is some Bob Ross stuff right now, I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, here's this random mishmash of black and now it's suddenly an asteroid in space. And there's the Enterprise flying around. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this um, this is definitely a, a lot less intent to this because there's no wrong answer. Um, that's why, you know, Bob Ross does that, the painting nature, because um, really there is a lot of random <laughs> in, in, in space as well as in, in uh, nature here, like whether it be leaves on a tree or floating rocks in space. There really isn't... Uh, it's not like a likeness. It's not like somebody's face where it has to be. There's a right and a wrong. Man, I feel like watching you do this, this might be like how you take your breaks while you're working and like not having to think as much because you know how to do this. You can kind of have fun with this as opposed to a likeness where you got to like really hyper fixate on how someone's nose and eyebrow looks and that sort of thing. Like, Is that a fair assessment? 
Yeah, absolutely. In fact, sometimes like if I start feeling a, a headache coming on, I'll like I'll switch to something like this. And I'll I'll actually save backgrounds on on certain things for oh I'm I'm kind of on a roll right now, but I'll save that for when I'm tired. Um and then I'll get that done like I call it end of the day work when I've been when I've been at it for over 12 hours and I need some something a little easier. Now, at what point do you break out the Bob Ross palette knife and fan brush? <laughs> Only when I work in oils, not for gouache. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just waiting for a happy little tree to sprout up in this asteroid field. It is the same. Um, it is the same idea, though. You know, it's the same as using that fan brush to make pine trees. Um, just putting these little highlights on these black blotches and suddenly, you know, your brain fills in the rest. But it really is, as you can see, just line work on the edge of a something that I just down with a, a larger brush well, that's also I think, an important part of how your work comes together too and it really this is like for photorealistic in general uh photorealistic painting you can see this with like the hildebrand brothers uh alex ross not as much i feel like but um when, when you're doing like these super duper heavily detailed things you kind of have to have things in the background that are not quite as detailed otherwise it's just going to be too much at once right yeah um and, and i was kind of uh, talking about that on, when i was doing the background on the commission um you want the backgrounds to be as simple as possible, especially if it's if it's not uh, a feature of the story in that particular panel when you're doing sequential work. You want to keep it as simple as possible to not take away from the uh, what's happening in the foreground. Uh, and you, you know, like a lot of times things will get lost if you overdo a background. Um, and from a design perspective, nobody likes to look at busy. <laughs> mm. You know, it, it'll. Uh, It'll just look bad, but there we go. That gives you, that gives you the idea. Um, but basically you don't have to have that much skill to do a space scape. <laughs> I just showed you something. You could do it. Um, if you've never painted before, you could probably learn this in like a, you know, in a day. Uh, it really is just water, paint, spreading out, splatter, and then blotching. <laughs> That's Damn. But Jake, really you made it look easy, but let's keep in mind, this is years of practice. And that is the value of an artist, of an actual artist doing this kind of stuff. Because this, for you, I'm sure, was many, many, many months and years of time to actually decipher how to do this in 20 minutes or less. So uh, <laughs> I think that's kind of an amazing thing to just witness here. Well, you you asked if I had any shortcuts. This is this is one of them. I'm not going <laughs> to tell you all my secrets. <laughs> that's for the next episode of the podcast, folks. We'll, we'll get him out of him somehow. Yeah. <laughs> Got to leave some place for me to go. <laughs> All right, well, JK, thank you so much for showing us this nebula. This is really awesome. Everybody here can see in the video version what the final version looks like. And uh, man, you made it look so easy. It's, it's really as Bob Ross in space. That's really awesome here. Uh, so I guess let's jump back over to the interview, though, and uh, let's keep talking Trek. All righty. So I got to ask this question as a fan, especially, uh, you know, we're doing this interview right now, early September. It's been a while since we've seen a TNG Mirrorverse comic come out. Is there more planned? Are there more in the way? What's going on with the future of the Mirrorverse saga? I actually don't know the answer to that right now. Um, I, like I said, I didn't work on the last one outside of the covers. So I know we had planned with me, the Tiptons. We had planned a sequel. This was going to be a two-part. I don't know if that was squashed. There's a lot of new and exciting things happening in Star Trek right now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it seems like a pretty full plate. So um, I would imagine nothing in the near future. If there is something going on that they, they're keeping it secret from me. 
but it I, just just with all the miniseries we have at the moment and the ongoing, I highly doubt that there's going to be anything Mirror Universe this year. So maybe maybe late 2025 or 24 rather. Um, but I I doubt there's anything right now. I haven't heard it. <laughs> So we don't really know what's happening next with the Mirrorverse, whether it's going to be in your hands or someone else's. Uh, I know you've been doing other Star Trek stuff as well, but I'm curious you know, for you as the fan now, what is a Star Trek story in your head that you'd like to maybe not only illustrate, but also write? Okay, we've, we've uh, the Tiptons and I have pitched this. I, I'm going to mention it because I, I think at this point it's probably never going to happen because we've been pitching it for like t- almost 10 years now. We wanted to do uh, our own Star Trek What If title called oh. Tapestries, based on the episode Tapestry, where Q would be the watcher and he would come in and narrate the story. Uh, and, and we would take actual episodes of Next Generation and say, but what if this happened instead? And then we could kill any character we wanted or we could do anything because anything goes. It's it's uh, it's a parallel universe. Um, I thought that would be a lot of fun. To kind of revisit episodes. And another one I wanted to do were was was a follow-up. I wanted to do like a mini-series about a, a pick like four episodes and follow-up. There are some things that are left open. Like I what happened to that guy with that Betazoid and Tin Man? What adventures are they up to? I want to know. You know, um, so I would love to have done a follow-up story on episodes. Uh, and the other thing I wanted to do was a uh, a TNG, the animated series comic book, a comic book based on the animated series that happened in another universe. You know, so the idea was this, we just play along like this actually happened. And this is the comic adaption of that animated series because after they canceled uh, uh, TNG again in an alternate universe, they never made movies. They they waited a couple of years and went to the animated series like they did with the original series. And I, what would that look like? And so I wanted to work with, um, I even had, uh, uh, artist Bobby Timoney, who just did like the super pets adaption for DC. He was going to be, he, he came up with the character designs for what these characters would look like as animated characters. And I was going to just do the layouts and painted backgrounds. And he was going to take on that. And we, we even got Dayton, Dayton Ward, uh, excited about it. And so we, we put a whole pitch together. And again, it's just something that we've been pitching for a while that probably isn't going to happen. So I feel totally comfortable talking about it. These three, and, and there's plenty more. Believe me, all I do is think up this stuff. <laughs> Go, oh, that would be good. But, uh, you know, like I was saying, Star Trek the at IDW, the plate is always so full. Yeah, it is. That if they do get to it, like once you have a pitch, they may get to it like five years later, you know. Because um, we're always, we're always like three years ahead of, you know, once this is done, then we got this, then we got this, then we got that, that kind of thing. To me, it just sounds like and these are all great ideas, but like Star Trek, what if that just sounds like the most amazing idea out there? I don't understand how they couldn't say us that. Like, I, I'm just we, I, I would just go on a rant right now. Like IDW, what the fuck? Make this happen. Come and we on. got the perfect name for it. We'll call it Tapestries based yeah. on because yeah. that episode Tapestry where Picard, you know. Yeah. I mean, uh, and who wouldn't want to read that? Like, I want to read that. In Q, we got like we just do John Delancey's voice, <laughs> Not, voice, literary voice. Like, you know, we write in the Q the cute dialogue. I mean, it would be perfect. It, and it would be funny because let's face it, Q narrating. <laughs> oh man, that is, that is too good. We could break idea. the Come fourth on. wall. You know, you, you could look right at the camera because <laughs> it's Q, you know, there's so much you could do. I mean, 
So we're going to start a letter writing campaign, starting with this episode, to uh, there you go. make this happen. Because come on, IDW, that's too good of a gold mine not to do something with. Oh my god! And the great thing is, you could get different artists on it. You know, totally. You could do like five episodes, five issues at once, because you could have a different artist every time, because it's a it's kind of an anthology idea. You know, like what if Strange New Worlds crew didn't figure out how to stop subspace rapacity from happening to everybody in the universe? <laughs> it's- it writes itself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everybody has that, like, everybody has that kind of what if mentality when they rewatch a show enough times. And let's face it, as Star Trek fans, we've seen every episode a million times. And every time we watch it, oh, what if that happened? You know, we all do it. It's perfect. And, uh, and like I said, Q, we got a built in watcher right there. <laughs> so, JK, let's just kind of wrap things up here a little bit and bring it back to my listeners because they're listening here. They're probably trying to get some pro tips on how to succeed and maybe go far in this industry. If they're not just listening to hear your awesome stories, but for somebody out there who wants to get into the field of what you're doing, what's your advice for them to go from a fan with a dream into someone that's working as a profession in this industry? Um, I would say pursue every avenue and stay tenacious. Do not be discouraged. If you think you got what it takes, you're either going to find out you don't or you're going to get a job. So, I mean, either way, you, you got to keep moving forward. Uh, take criticism in the spirit it was intended. Uh, it will help you. Um, and then come back, come back to that same person. Uh, if you, in other words, if you have a portfolio review and they say, this is a little weak, this is a little weak. Don't, I mean, it's going to hurt. I ain't going to lie to you. <laughs> it's going to hurt, but just smile, say, thank you. Walk away, take it seriously, make those changes, practice, go back to that person. Uh, they nine times out of 10, they will remember you. If you mentioned that you were there before. Um, and I would say what, um, don't be afraid to publish, self-publish. Um, uh, now with, you know, when I was doing it, we actually put out books because <laughs> this was, uh, this was late nineties, but I actually got picked up because I, I had, uh, put out a, a book, uh, digital webbing presents number 16, a 12 issue. It was an anthology book, a 12 issue story in there called crazy Mary. And that's what ended up getting me the work because I made sure once that book came out, I had it on every editor's desk. Um, and one of them actually responded, and that's how I got my first job. That's a good method. Now you can do that online, so and, and you can much easier promote. So for artists, really, the biggest introduction is not just your own personality, but it's also your artwork and it's your portfolio. So for someone who is as well-versed in this as you are, what should be in someone's portfolio, and what tool should they be presenting to somebody who they're trying to get a job with? Um, one of the most important things and one of the most common mistakes people make is, is uh, dynamic splash pages and covers. Uh, if you're looking to get sequential work in comics, show some sequential work. And you're going to want to show at least three pages of a story. If they can see what's happening and understand what's happening in those three pages without words, then they know you can tell a story visually. That's what they're looking for. The other thing they're looking for, and this is where self-publishing helps, if you can publish something, it tells them you can finish a project and get it done on time. That's something they'll never get from a portfolio review. That's something you want to stress. That's something you want to show them because that's a big concern. A lot of people have started and not finished a project and then that ends their career right there. Um, so if you have something you're working on, a passion project, finish it. Finish it and let, you know, let them know. Uh, either publish it online or publish it however you want to publish it, but make sure they know about it. So, JK, what are you working on right now that you can tell us about without IDW sending the Hunters of Tosk after you and doing whatever they're going to do to you? 
Um, I'm actually not doing any Star Trek work until spring because right now I'm working with uh, Keith DeCandido, who's a, a, a well-known Star Trek writer and it's also on a separate project. So we got two Star Trek people working on something. Apart from that, I can't tell you. <laughs> of course, not. I can tell you that I I started in October and I'll be finished around April, <laughs> and then I'll okay. be uh, back on Star Trek. But it is going to take all my time for about uh, six months or so. All right, we will have to wait and see what happens next. Uh, how can my audience keep up to date with what you're working on next? Well, uh, best way to do that, and uh, I should mention while I'm working on that project, I may still be doing Star Trek covers, so that that that'll never end. Okay, um, good, good. That's what matters. But, yeah. But you can uh, you can find me uh, on Instagram, uh, Blue Skies, uh, Macedon, Twitter, all the Twitters, <laughs> and Facebook. Uh, I'm JK underscore Woodward on on all of them except Facebook. I'm uh, the art of JK Woodward. You can find the page there. What I I, I often will do uh, demos and stuff on on Instagram and uh, across the platforms, um, and do that uh, kind of time lapse photography thing. So. Uh, Anything I'm working on that I'm allowed to show, usually, usually commissions, you can, you can see it online. And that's where I make my announcements. And that's where also where I uh, make my announcements about, about commissions. If I'm taking commissions, if you want to get on the list. All right. So JK, last thing for today, what's the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Oh, um, well, having the inside track on what's coming up is kind of fun. <laughs> that's pretty sweet. <laughs> um, and it's just, it's, it's, as an artist, it's fun to paint what you love. And uh, nothing, I don't think I love anything more than Star Trek. So, JK, thank you so much today for talking us through your artwork, talking us about your Star Trek fandom, and also especially for that demo that you showed us here. So uh, we're going to have links in the show notes for all the different ways you can follow JK and support him and check out all his cool stuff, as well as a few links where you can buy some of his work on Amazon. So, again, JK, I, I'm so grateful I got to spend this time with you today because I'm a longtime admirer of your work. Uh, this is just like for real, really, really cool. I mean, it was awesome getting to meet you in person. It's even cooler now to spend this quality time with you and just really dig into what you do. So thank you so much. And thank you for all your hard work on the Star Trek franchise. Thanks for having me. I had fun. That's it for this week's show. Thanks again for checking out Trek Untold. If you aren't already, please follow Trek Untold on social media, where you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok, among others, all at Trek Untold. Don't forget to subscribe to us on YouTube for the video versions of this show at youtube.com slash at Trek Untold. And subscribe to us on whatever platform you're listening to the audio version on. We always appreciate likes, shares, comments, thumbs up, ratings, and reviews, and whatever you can do to help spread the word about this podcast and inform other Trekkies about why they need to check this show out. If you're able to financially support this show, visit patreon.com slash trekuntold to learn about the different ways you can contribute to keeping this show going full speed ahead. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz. This has been Trek Untold, and remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.